0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining me today is Andrew Heaton, award winning comedian, contributor to Reason, former congressional staffer, and primetime television writer. He hosts the policy and comedy podcast, The Political Orphanage, the unlicensed history podcast, Losers, Pretenders, and Scoundrels, and the science fiction podcast, Alienating the Audience. Welcome back to the show, Andrew.
1: Great to be back. Thank you for having me on. Now,
0: today it's going to be a discussion of international relations theory. Which is not the sexiest name, for being honest,
1: uh, for what it is. No, it's not. This is why I, IR people should not be in charge of branding.
0: <laughs> Very few people should be in charge of branding their own stuff. Let's be honest.
1: Agreed. I plus IR people like so. I, I've got a master's degree in this, Trevor, and I can tell you, IR people are not. Not only are they bad at branding, they're also really bad at writing, uh, because the a lot of this is in academia and. I don't. I assume this is all of academia and not just international politics. But I, I, I came and got this degree right after I'd been working for Congress, and I would read this dense, dense jargon, and I would go, I would be fired if I had handed this into the congressman because, rightly, the congressman would have gone, you took eight pages to say what could have been said in two pages. And you used a bunch of unnecessarily large words to convince me that you're smart. But the point of this wasn't to prove you're smart. The point of this was to communicate an idea. Academia, particularly at the master's degree and PhD level, mm, a lot of them aren't trying to communicate an idea. They're trying to communicate how smart they are. I, on the other hand, know I'm a little bit of an idiot, Trevor, (laughs) and I don't mind sounding like an idiot. I'm a clown. It's my job to be a clown. So I don't care if you all think I'm smart or not. And I can translate to a regular human. Yeah, we have
0: to know these terms. People throw them about. And of course, uh, IR is always relevant, but it's quite relevant now with Russia invading and still fighting a war in the
1: Ukraine. Yeah, and the, the way I think that we should label it is, don't call it IR theory, which sounds very boring. We're talking about the DNA of war. We're talking about the molecular root cause of conflict between countries, how to mitigate that, and how to predict stuff. That's what we're talking about, which is interesting and relevant.
0: It's interesting. One of the things you said in, in his podcast, in, in Andrew's podcast, which we'll link in the show notes here uh, to kind of go before we get into the different theories, is that before getting into this, you should kind of set aside your, your domestic Ideology. So if you're a free market person, if you're a person who believes in a robust social safety net or or whatever in between, then these are not necessarily in the same spectrum as whatever your international relations theory is, that you could have very, very different or the same. These two people who – two groups, one who believes in a robust social safety net and one who thinks the welfare state should be abolished actually have the same international relations viewpoint –
1: V- very much. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I'm glad you prefaced that. The terms that we're going to be using do not have a causal relationship with their usage in normal day-to-day political conversation at the domestic level. Uh, and a great example of this, and don't nobody take a swing at me. Nobody get mad at me. There's actually, I find, a lot of intellectual overlap between Marxists and libertarians when it comes to IR theory. Now, the reason for that is that when we're talking about Marxism in domestic political economy, we mean um, class warfare and trying to empower the proletariat by giving the state control of industry. That's what Marxists are talking about. But when we're talking about at the IR level, what Marxism really means is the root cause of conflict is economic. And so people that have a Marxist view in international relations theory... Are, are looking at the war in Iraq and saying that was about oil, as opposed to liberals who would say that was about spreading democracy, failing but attempting to spread democracy. Right? A uh, a liberal, uh, which again is different than in the 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 context in America, uh, a liberal is going to look at Ukraine and say this is about NATO, the European Union, the clash of civilizations. Uh, whereas a Marxist is going to go, no, this is about Gazprom. And about opening up markets. And where where there's significant overlap between libertarians and Marxists is if you just put the word crony in front of capitalist. All of a sudden, Ron Paul and the Marxists agree with each other on virtually everything, right? Uh, it's just that Ron Paul thinks capitalism works when it's actually capitalism, whereas the the Marxists think it's bad and nasty and always exploitative. But like – so there is a lot of work there or a lot of overlap there. And, uh, and at the same time, because I, I don't want to um, – something that I'll, I'll caution you on. I, I assume that your audience is very – given that it's on libertarianism.org. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most of your listeners are libertarian. Friendly.
0: Or yes. are
1: like eight or nine hyphenates to say why they're not libertarian. But they have the exact, but you're broadly speaking, everybody's listening is in the libertarian camp. You're gonna find elements of all of these theories that you relate to. So I, I would caution you: don't, don't just be careful about the terminology. Give yourself the um the mental breathing room to not try to figure out how to apply your libertarianism to these theories because they really are separate. And you have an opportunity to think. For yourself and think anew, and not just try to glom onto what strikes you as libertarian. Because as you'll see, there's a lot of common commonality with liberalism as well, which is about markets and about uh, about democracy and 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 the liberals again, different than domestic liberals. IR liberals see their founding fathers as John Locke and Adam Smith, who are libertarian heroes, right? So, uh, so you get to kind of you you get to piece together your own cool bo- boutique worldview when we get into this.
0: Well, let's do that. Let's uh, start with the one that it seems in my life has been most discussed, or which is realism, uh, or is like the backdrop theory to some extent. Yeah, uh, where people modify it, um, and and you, especially in the twentieth century, which is of course when we get this entire field of IR to come into play. But you know, realism and the two cataclysmic world wars that we had—they kind of played together uh, in a causal relationship there.
1: Yeah. So, and and backdrop theory is a really good way to describe that because realism is kind of the fundamental backdrop theory. Um, I, I am increasingly coming to the position that the other theories don't so much disagree with realism as they, they want to tack on an asterisk. So realism is that it's not uh, an idea that Uh, There is no global policeman. There is no global mayor or court system or anything like that. States are all interacting with each other in an anarchy like the Wild West. And everybody's got guns trained at each other. We're in a Mexican standoff. We all kind of want to shoot each other and take the other guy's cards and go to the next town and blow it on the, the brothel or whatever. We don't trust each other and we're we've all got guns on each other. And we're maybe I'm forming a coalition with Trevor because I we're gonna make sure the black hats don't take our money because we're white hats or whatever. But it's that's kind of the, the root thing. And so in that view, what realists would say is if we're if we're investigating the DNA of war, the the DNA of war is power dynamics. That the principal player we're discussing is the nation state the westphalian nation state and they operate like billiard balls and the physics which is animating them is just power dynamics that if you got one really big if if hungary is getting very big then austria is going to gang up with prussia to try and stop hungary if if germany or if if, if prussia and austria unite and form some kind of german speaking union well then france and england might gang up to try and stop that from happening but ultimately what we're talking about is power dynamics. And when we get into ideology, when we get into economics, these things are trivial in comparison to that. And on on the billiard ball analogy, they're like the the stripes are solids. They're really not material in terms of what we're discussing. Now, I I do think you're right, Trevor, that that is kind of the backdrop theory to all this, because I don't think liberals would contest that. What liberals would say, yes, but uh, that, that Yes, power dynamics are the predominant thing we're discussing here. We're not going to disagree with that. But whereas a, a realist would say power dynamics, uh, you know, the, just the military power between nation states is ninety percent of what we're talking about. A liberal would go, eh, let's say seventy percent. But there is a remaining thirty percent that's that's still important that that we you need to acknowledge and that that's going to make a, a material difference.
0: The interesting thing I'm going to bring, going to maybe jump ahead in some sense. Not necessarily we have this outline, but what you just the analogies, the the examples you just gave of if Austria and Germany get together, maybe France and England will will try to get together, too. But th- there's a backdrop there, which you describe which is the social constructivism thesis that I feel like is being almost assumed, which is that well, why Austria and Germany and not, Austria and Italy. There are German-speaking parts of Italy, but not most of Italy. So why, why, do, why would these nations happen to be the ones that form together? And I think that's an important thing. We, we, we can't take it for granted. And that stuff, of course, changes over time. But that's the social constructivism asset. There are, there are historical ties. There are language ties. There are religion ties that make certain groupings make more sense than other groupings.
1: Right. I'm, I'm glad that you did that because I've, I've now done this style of interview several times in the last week. Nobody else, Trevor, has brought up social constructivism to the point where I just do it at the end. I'm like, by the way, there's a thing called social constructivism. But i move on. Uh, yeah. So whereas realism is concerned with power dynamics, social constructivism says we are very concerned with individuals and relationships. So, uh, power like like realism, think Otto von Bismarck. Think Cardinal Richelieu. Think of people who are looking at a map of Europe and going, I don't care about anything other than the size of your army and the army coming after me. And I'm going to team up with people to fight the bigger army. That's realism in a nutshell. Social constructivism is going, yes, but. Yes, that's yes. But the fact that You, Otto von Bismarck, are in a German-speaking country, and I, who live in uh, in uh, Bavaria, am a German-speaking principality. We have separate armies, but we we have some commonality here that's going to make us predisposed towards each other more than we would be towards France. And a a more modern example we could do is uh, Canada and Cuba are not the same country uh, as America. There were three separate countries, but if if Canada suddenly doubles its military. Defense spending, America's not really going to freak out about that. If Cuba did, maybe we'd think about that. Um, if we're, if you know, given how massive our military budget is, let's say we don't care either way and we think it's cute. Uh, if if Britain suddenly doubles the amount of nuclear missiles they have we're not going to care about that if north korea doubles the amount of nuclear missiles they have we are going to care about that and social constructivism comes in and it points out these various relationships across the board there's ethnic relationships there's shared history you know we 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 share a border with mexico and canada i actually don't know what the trade relations are we might have more trade with mexico i don't really know but i think broadly the average american that speaks english as their first language probably feels more of a commonality with canada than we do with mexico even though we are separate countries, right? Um, you you have this religiously, where you know historically England might feel more inclined to team up with the Netherlands and the German principalities than with France because it's Catholic, and uh, you know we we might you might have situations where Muslim countries feel more inclined to hang out than 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 not. Um, you have dynastic relationships where uh, you know my cousin is the arch is the queen of France, so I'm less likely to go in that kind of thing. Um, so the, the the problem with social constructivism is uh, it, it is so granular as to not be useful predictively, I think, which is why it's really not a, a massive theory within American foreign policy circles nor anywhere else that I can think of uh, because with realism, you can go, well, if it's all billiard balls, we know that if – if uh, Ukraine dramatically increases its military, it's probably going to provoke Russia. We can look at that and make a, 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 regu- or a reasonable inference from that. With liberalism, which we'll talk about in a minute, we can say if there's an authoritarian regime over here, we know that authoritarian regimes and democratic regimes don't like each other and don't trust each other. So we can infer that if this authoritarian regime is becoming more authoritarian, there's an increased likelihood of conflict between its neighbors that are democratic. Social constructivism is so... There's so many factors there that it's almost just good after the fact to explain why something didn't work. Uh, like, like I, I would I would call the social constructivists when you're about to launch the tanks, call them and be like, "Hey, we're about to invade this country. Does this seem like a good idea to you?" Because they're going to come in and go, "Oh no, you shouldn't do. Okay, no, 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 no because they're all Lutherans and the the whatever the thing is. I think where social constructivism actually kind of comes in handy is uh, in the in the 2000s, looking at say terrorism on the global stage. Terrorism is difficult to understand as a realist because terrorists don't have nation states. Uh, Like like terrorism is a tactic. It's not a a thing. Eventually you get ISIS, right? But like Al Qaeda wasn't a state. So it's difficult to take a Bismarckian mindset about alliances and military buildup and deterrence how does deterrence affect terrorists? Like, they, you've got more tanks. Well, that's not going to stop terrorists from suicide bombing. Social constructivism is good for that kind of thing. It's almost like good for non-state actors, good for uh, marginal thinking, good for um, really dealing into the nuance once you've already got the situation established.
0: Oh, that's another – question that is i think still setting the scene or at least on assumptions that we we use which is the nature of, of the nation state and particularly this concept of sovereignty because it's not clear to me that the all these theories work within the concept of the nation state at least being the primary actor of what but this is a relatively new idea it's about 300 years old and That before the way of doing international relations was a to ignore the nation state and the concept of sovereignty. But then after Westphalia, we, we have kind of the first IR theory, which is that all these groups that were fighting this bloody 30 years war decided to just sort of stay on their own side of the fence. And then everyone pretends that there's some sort of impermeable thing called sovereignty that we all have to respect even though these nation states themselves, you know, carved out of of imperfect lines, imperfect ethnic very sect barriers, I mean, so in modern IR, first it, it seems necessary that we just have to think about the nation state first, right? And you call them billiard balls, which is a good way. It's like they're all the same on the inside, the way we th- at least in realism they're all the same.
1: Real in realism yeah. they are, yeah. But
0: but so- I mean, sovereignty itself is. An, I mean, I, we use it, but it's it's somewhat ill-defined in terms of when you're allowed to do pure sovereignty.
1: Yeah, and, and you, you sound very much like a, a social constructivist at the moment because social constructivists would point that out, that like social constructivists are concerned with ideas and norms and taboos and things like that, right? So like one of the things that social constructivists will point out is we're in this anarchic system. Um, we're in the Big Mexican standoff. Okay, no one feels real comfortable using nuclear weapons. To, to not like that, would we we would have thought twice about dropping him on Vietnam. We could have, but there would have been such an incredible social outcry domestically and globally. No one uses gas. That's been a thing since the world like World War I that you just don't do that. Um countries generally claim to not assassinate foreign officials. Uh that that is the the claim anyway. And then um Beyond that, all of them agree to the concept of a Westphalian nation state, which is this interesting thing. As you rightly point out, Trevor, it is a fiction, like it's an abstract concept. I mean, for the record, before all the anarchists start cheering, so is Tuesday, so is Sunday, so is the concept of latitude and longitude lines. We made them all up, but they can be useful. Uh, but nation states are made up. They're not. They're not a real thing. There's something that's fairly new in how we think. We didn't used to think that way. We used to. You used to be some peasant that spoke German, but your lord lived in France, and like you didn't. You, 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 there was a much more complicated, soupy way of looking at that. So a social constructivist would would go right. Like one of the norms that we have that we made up in the same way that we have a norm about not gassing people in trenches anymore, and that's not acceptable form of warfare. One of the other norms is we all pretend nation states are a thing. And, uh, and, and uh, as a result, we're going to act and and do these things. And um, that, that is really entrenched in American thinking in particular. We are very nation state oriented, um, partly because we are a polyglot culture. We, we are not an, to our great credit, we are not an ethno state, nor should we be. But you can look at a lot of European countries that are effectively ethno-states or were ethnostates for a very long time. And so for them, they maybe not the, the, the nation-state bit is not as important as the nation bit, because they'll think of themselves as well, we're all tall, blue-eyed, blonde Dutch Thinking people. Speaking of right? S- Serbia,
0: like, for example, I mean, which does happen to be a nation Serbia, state, yeah. but there was a long period of time that they were just a, a people and nation. Right.
1: Right. right. Or, or like one of, the, one of the interesting things that I find in history is there's this bizarre thing that we now have, and we've had it since Westphalia, where if you make a treaty with a regime, you are making a treaty with that nation in perpetuity regardless of who the regime is. So like – now that makes sense in an American context where the Senate signs a treaty and then a new Senate comes in. The old Senate acknowledges that the, the institution itself persists and that you have the, – the president of your company – has gone away but there's a new president and so the contract's still legally binding. But like like it, it, does that really apply when when Britain makes a deal with the emperor of China and then the republicans come in and murder the emperor and then the commies come in and kick the republicans out and they go to Taiwan who still who owns that deal right? And for whatever reason in international relations we now act as though nope permanently like if you made a deal with like Russia like Putin up till recently, was paying off World War One debt, which makes no sense. Like World War One debt's under the czar. There's been a czar, there's been the communists that killed the czar, and now there's whatever Putin is, but Russia was still on the hook for it. And like, and that that is this bizarre norm that operates in a good example of social constructivism: of like, right, ideas do matter. They do govern these things. We are to some extent making up the physics, and then we act much like money. We made up money, and now we and now it has real force.
0: Well, that's a good segue into into getting into liberalism, uh, liberal institutionalism a little bit more in terms – because that, that also to some extent is based on people believing at least some ideals, some ideas that end up mattering and that we can do something to stop war other than just getting a bigger and bigger and bigger club than the other guy has. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and um, this is one of those things where I, I think uh, I think everybody sort of likes to think of themselves as a realist because it sounds gritty. And pragmatic, you just you, you feel like you're you're John Wayne slamming your your drink on the table and going, "Damn it, we've got to actually, you know, whatever the thing is, right?" Like um, liberals share quite a lot of intellectual overlap with libertarians. Uh, now, like I'm you you would know this far better than me, Trevor. So I'm not even going to fight you on this or argue with you on this. But it, it would seem to me that the libertarian movement's really two different movements that are joined together. You have classical liberals who are coming out of the Enlightenment. This would be. Locke, Adam Smith, Thomas Jefferson, people like that, Montesquieu, Montaigne, all those guys, and you have anarchists, which are coming out of a different intellectual tradition. They're they're a different set. That's Michael Malice wrote a whole book on that, uh, and it's not drawing on social contract theory, right? So if you're if you're from that Adam Smith side of this, if you're from the Enlightenment side of this, Montaigne, founding fathers, all that stuff, then then that same intellectual lineage goes into liberalism as an IR theory, and the the twofold. Elements of that are there was a thought process that I think I agree with, and many people agree with that countries that trade together are less likely to go to war. That that uh, economic relationships mitigate conflict because the actors involved in them don't want to lose their money. If if I am if I've got uh, a a industry in France that relies on raw materials in Germany, it's not in my benefit to go to war with Germany because you're going to disrupt that supply chain. And I'm probably going to lose my money. Uh, And so a a modern corollary to this, uh, Walmart is the largest trading partner with China. The company Walmart is a larger trading partner with China than any nation state on earth. And so noting that Walmart is headquartered in Arkansas, it's Mm -hmm. unlikely that China is going to go to war with the United States because it would be economic suicide for China to do so. And I don't think it would help us very much either. So liberals come in and go – Open markets, free markets, something that libertarians like, something that I'm a big fan of, open markets and free markets are apt to create that interconnectivity that makes warfare a less appealing way to try and and engage your your resource accumulation. That made sense, like pre-Westphalian state where you're just a baron who's trying to conquer somebody else's county and you get all their serfs and now you get – to squeeze money out of them through predation, it doesn't make a lot of sense in a modern economy. And the more we can have an interconnected global economy, the less likely we're going to have conflict. Now, the corollary to this that's also coming about at the same time is the idea of democratic peace. This is coming out with, uh, um, I think, uh, Immanuel Kant and some of the other guys who who are going – part part of this was demonstrably refuted, where you can see these these thinkers early on where where they're going – Uh, Well, people are engaging in war because these barons don't care. Like we're all just little toy soldiers and things. If people could vote on war, they would never vote to go to war. Cut to World War I. Cut to World War II. It turns out uh, bougie people a lot of the time like having their ego connected to the nation state that they're a part of, and they like the idea of beating other ones. That's not true. But there's still some salience there in that uh, democratic regimes do experience war weariness, more quickly than other ones do. So if we are a democratically elected country and we are going to war and now we're not really sure why we're there, but we have rationing and our taxes are higher and our teenagers keep getting killed, we're more apt to go, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to vote for the other guy next time. And we're more apt to stop a war from happening. Uh, and and that is not going to happen in an authoritarian regime. In an authoritarian regime, there's no accountability or less accountability. It's just a question of whether you get toppled or not, but you're not really worried about winning the midterm elections. Um, there's also the idea that um, autocrats are more likely to be belligerent, according to liberal theory. The idea that they're more apt to solve things, they're more apt to try and say uh, shore up popularity domestically by going to war, um, and so part of liberal IR theory. Now, now liberals will acknowledge that uh, as a result of all of this, liberal governments, which I'll back up, liberals then think to put this all together: democracy and markets. Are going to mitigate against conflict. That basically the more countries that join the free world, the less likely there is to be war. That that if you were a democratic country that has trade relations with other democratic countries, you are much less likely to go to war than an authoritarian regime is. It's possible, it's less likely and uh and so the liberal solution to all of this is to to build institutions to enfranchise other nations into the free world. We're going to have the WTO to get people involved in open markets. We're going to have the European Union to stop European countries from building up their arms and going to war with each other. We're going to have NATO so that the Atlantic Alliance maintains Britain, America and Europe on the same military page. We're not worried about building up armaments between our borders because we're all on the same page. We're all part of the same institution, right? So th- that's what the liberals are doing and um, as a result, the the experiment that liberals oftentimes engage in is a kind of crusade to promote liberalism, uh, I, i.e. the war in Iraq. The idea that if we can go in and do some regime changing and get rid of this authoritarian thug and and push democracy into this country, it will join our wonderful world. And then Francis... Fukuyama will, will pop his champagne cork and shout, huzzah, history has ended. Everyone sees the Federation's better than the Klingon Empire and, and we will come into it. And so li- liberals will acknowledge that that kind of does spark a uh, a crusader mindset in liberal regimes. Uh, and you see a lot of the time there is this friction between liberal regimes and democratic regimes because liberal regimes do not view democratic regimes as, um, as legitimate and are, are more likely to go in and try and topple them, put in our guy.
0: After reviewing this and i was struck by the fact that what really seems arguably on one level what seems to have had created the post-war peace that we've experienced which has been pretty profound i mean we did have a cold war but it didn't result in super hot wars and for about 30 years now we've have it going the amount of hot wars not, there's a fair amount of civil wars but it has gone down to the point that i think it's one reason why for so many westerners the the Russian invasion of the Ukraine of Ukraine felt surreal because it seemed like war is a thing that we
1: left behind out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you playing risk? Exactly. We we were done we, with yeah, that. We were stopping
0: yeah. that. And therefore the liberal institutionalism might have kind of demonstrated its value. And one of the, one of the reasons that realism seems less likely to be true is that the, at least the period of time when the U S was a unipolar, Like power in the entire world, all these other nation states just accepted it. I mean, I mean, not maybe not Russia and maybe China was biding its time, but Germany didn't try to build back up its army. You didn't see coalitions saying because that would be what realism would predict. Correct, you would not just let America sit around as the biggest bully on the block. So maybe the UN and all these institutions that sometimes libertarians are prone to making fun of, maybe they actually have they're effective. they're not maybe great at peacekeeping and they don't have an army, but there's some nature of those institutions and the iterative game that happens that means that they're they're actually more effective than the cynics would think so
1: yeah and you're you're absolutely right about that the the cold war the conclusion of the Cold War largely discredited realists for a generation um where uh, like you can go back and read realists talking about how the Soviet Union will outlast Coca Cola, and like that was not the case. The the you literally have Gorbachev doing a Pizza Hut commercial in my lifetime, so that that was not the case. Um, uh, yeah, according according to to classic realist theory, nation states are going to achieve some kind of equilibrium that if you've got one big guy and a bunch of little guys, the little guys are going to band together to stop the big guy from pushing them around. And you had during World War I and World War II, you had a multipolar uh, multipolar world where there's a bunch of great powers. There's France and Germany and Russia and so on and so forth. And then during the Cold War, you went from a multipolar world to a, a binary world of two superpowers. And the world was uh, bandwagoning, which is a, a realist perspective around these two su- these two superpowers. Either you were the Soviet Union or you were America, or you were, generally speaking, you're in one of their two orbits. Uh, under, according to realist theory, and you can see this at the conclusion of the Cold War, realists were like, well, that's it. Germany and France are going to make a comeback because in 92 or 88 or whatever that was, the, the two countries that seemed to have the most kick-ass economies and had it previously had the most kick-ass armies were Japan and Germany. So it was a thought that like, yeah, when when Russia is now wheezing and falling over and, and dying, these two countries are going to rise. And that didn't happen. Uh, like what what we ended up happening for about 20 years is is what a, a man named John Eikenberry, who's a, a liberal theorist, calls the American system uh, and that we lived in a unipolar world in which America had just become a global hegemon. And nobody – like. There, there are terrorists throwing rocks at us, but there's no one seriously thinking about in any way countermanding the the military hegemony of the, the United States and the American system. And there was this kind of nice idea for a while that countries were getting with a program. Uh, you know, China was liberalizing its markets. That's the reason China is wealthy today because they quit being such dumb commies. And uh, they, were, they were to some extent liberalizing their government. Um, Russia seemed like it was friends with us again. And so realism looked like it had been proven wrong and, and liberalism was the way to go. And, uh, I think realists are basically now saying, right, you, it wasn't going to be immediate. There was going to be a period of readjustment, but ultimately the world is going to go back to its default position, which is one of realism, um, to the, so to the discredit and to the credit of liberals, um, liberals used to be called idealists where, where there was overlap with idealists. And I won't go fully into this, but, um, there, there's significant overlap in the form of Woodrow Wilson. hold back your bile, libertarians I we all agree, yes, yes, Woodrow wilson uh, but but in terms of the the IR contributions he had, he started the League of Nations, which was an attempt to ban war and it went disastrously wrong. America never even joined uh, World War II happened, so it's it's completely useless in that regard. And realists point to that and go, this is stupid. And I think realists and libertarians can both look at the United Nations and say, this is ridiculous. Like, who do you have on the Human Rights Council? You've got, like, Iran, Russia, and some fill-in-the-blankistan country where they Libya. – Libya, right. So you're like, well, this, this is a joke – but, but it doesn't matter because the most powerful guy at the United Nations is the dude who makes gift shop prices since it doesn't have an army or the ability. I think that's fair. But there are liberal institutions that have done a very good job that I, I think need to get a shout out. Uh, the European Union is a good example of this. Now, when I say that the European Union has done a great job, I'm not talking about like technocrats are smarter than national governments and that kind of – we're not talking about that. We're just talking about has Is anybody seriously worried about Germany invading Belgium since the instigation of the European Union? Does anybody actually think Sardinia needs to defend itself against France? No. The answer is no. The European Union has been a wild success in terms of keeping Europe from fighting Europe. Uh, NATO, I think, is another good example of this. Now, um, we, we can talk about the efficacy of NATO and all these different things, but NATO has been good at keeping The European – Europe, America and Britain militarily on the same page where we are not at all concerned with having defend ourselves from each other. There is no concern that the United Kingdom needs to worry about being invaded by America. There's no concern Canada needs to be worried about it, right? Institutions have to a great extent bound these countries together, which is a liberal position. Uh, and uh, and well, I'm everybody hates the WTO. I like the idea of the WTO, which is basically if you're in the WTO, you can't charge people higher tariffs than other members of the WTO. Everybody has to have the lowest possible tariff applied to all members, which is good because I want open markets. I don't want there to be any protectionism. The WTO is good against militating against that. Um, so yeah, those are those are kind of the the, the broad strokes against them. Uh, I don't think the UN is a very good example of a liberal institution in terms of efficacy. However, I will give credit to the internet. International Atomic Energy Agency, which I do think has been very good at stopping nuclear proliferation. Um, you know, they're they're the ones that watchdog the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and um, a couple of countries have backed out of that, um, notably Iran and North Korea. But a bunch of countries were like, "Yeah, we give up our nukes." Um, South Africa was a nuclear power. Ukraine was a nuclear power, and uh, one of the things people are getting wrong right now is uh, there's this sort of purported idea that America promised we would defend Ukraine if they gave up their nukes, which is not what we promised. We promised we wouldn't invade Ukraine if they gave up their nukes, and we haven't. So, uh, And and generally speaking, I'm going to say probably best that less countries have nukes than more nukes, and, and these institutions have arguably been effective at doing that, which brings us to, uh, unless you want to go to a different direction, it kind of brings us to this fault line between the realists and the liberals insofar as Ukraine goes. Because
0: No, that's exactly where I was going next. Right. This is this is is, on one level, the way you've described liberalism seems like the, the liberal world order, the democratic world order ganging up on this petty autocrat. Yes. But there's also there's the pure realism, which is arguably what Putin is playing. Yes. And, and so there's a kind of conflict there that Putin is just purely a realist in terms of how much he feels threatened by encroaching
1: institutions around that him. That is very much my take. Um, my, my, my take from where I'm at is I, I think liberalism is um, like – to go back, they're not completely antithetical to one another. I think liberals, if you really get into it, are effectively realists plus nuance. And it's they're, they're saying, yes, it's 90 – realists are saying it's 90% power. who gives a shit. And liberals are going, it's 70% power, but it's 30% economics and it's 30% the type of regime you have. So yes, power is very important, but it's not universally decisive. Um, Where I'm at, I think liberalism is very useful in terms of keeping allies, allies. So if we're talking about how to keep France and Germany buddies, liberalism is good for that and it's useful for that. And the institutions that liberals have built are good and useful for that. Realism is really good for analyzing thugs. And I think that that's what we should be doing and and as you point out I don't I do not think Vladimir Putin is going home and reading Eikenberry or John Locke or whatever. I do not think he's I think he's looking at this in terms of guns and he's looking at this in terms of money. And I think the Chinese are doing the same thing and I think authoritarian regimes in particular should be understood in terms of realism. And this is where this it goes from being academic to being a a practical implementation of this because there are mutually exclusive interpretations of how we should be dealing with Ukraine based on what your worldview is at this point. A lot of the time they're in sync with one another. You could be a realist or a liberal during the Cold War and still be opposed to the Soviet Union. But now they're, they're, they're apart because if you are a realist, you look at the situation in Ukraine and you go, that is a real shame that we pushed Russia into invading this country. That doesn't mean, if you say that, you think that Putin's a good guy. It means that you think he's a rational guy. So, like, if I say I don't think Darth Vader's crazy, does not mean I think Darth Vader's a good dude for blowing up Alderaan. Uh, uh, We're allowing the Grand Moff Tarkin to blow up Alderaan. I don't want to get a bunch of emails from your listeners who I'm confident— know a lot about Star they, Wars.
0: They absolutely would. I, I was going to correct yeah. you, but then uh, I did. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're <laughs> all on the same team, right? Important. Yes.
1: Uh, Grand yeah. Moff, Tarkin and Vader are not good guys, but they are rational guys, right? So that's what realists are saying about Putin. They're not saying, they're not saying that if you're analyzing the physics of the situation, that you like the billiard ball itself. Um, realists like John Mearsheimer look at the situation and go basically liberal hubris and a fixation on kind of uh self-aggrandizing uh, uh ideological rhetoric has has led to this unnecessary conflict in ukraine in which a bunch of people are dying and the closest thing to world war three we've had during my lifetime and the reason they say this is under realist theory again it's all about power and it's about zones of influence and it's about bandwagoning and such so from russia's perspective ukraine is its historic backyard and the historic backyard through which it's always been invaded. It's been invaded by Germany twice. It's been invaded by France once. Um, Typically, it's invaded more frequently from there. I guess the Mongols invaded it once from a different direction. But but generally speaking, the people they're worried about are coming in from its Western, its, western flank through Ukraine. And so us making pretensions to enfranchise Ukraine into the western order of NATO, the European Union, Those are things that are deeply dangerous and disturbing to Russia. In the same way that if Vladimir Putin were to strike up a tripartite alliance between Russia, Mexico, and Canada, we would view that as an existential threat. If Russia were putting in missile attachments in Vancouver and Puerto Vallarta and Baja, California, we would freak out about that. And we wouldn't let them. We would definitely invade Canada and Mexico if they thought about doing that, without question. If Mexico Mexico was going to let China... Put in Air Force bases in Baja California, we would seize Baja California. And that's realists are saying, yeah, it turns out they're playing by the same rules we are. Or rather, they are concerned about the same things we are, notably existence. And that in the same way we've got the Monroe Doctrine, and we're not we're definitely not going to let people right in our backyard team up with what we consider great power rivals, Russia feels the exact same way, feels equally threatened. And the timeline that they have, I think works pretty well for that. Uh, they they look and go, look, in 2008, George W. Bush, in the throes of this post-Soviet liberal utopia, Francis Fou- uh, Fukuyama, you know, the West is one type thing, goes, hey, the Cold War's over. It's time we invited in Georgia and Ukraine. And he, he says declaratively, it is not a question of if, it's a question of when. Uh, we are, uh, to, uh, TBD, we are inviting Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, by all accounts, Vladimir Putin goes into a fury when this happens. Uh, a month later, he invades Georgia. Remember when McCain was talking about going into Georgia, and we're like, that happens a month after America says we're going to invite Georgia into, which would be like like Russia saying Manitoba is going to join the Russian Federation. Um, and ever since then, we've been slowly bringing Ukraine closer and closer to us. And I won't go through the whole timeline here, but the most salient one recently is in November of last year, uh, the the American government, the Biden administration, uh, several other governments, but most notably the Ukrainian government, do naval military drills in the Black Sea. Now that would be as if Russia were doing naval drills in, in cooperation with Canada and Lake Superior. We would definitely take a dim view of that. And so the thinking in realist circles is we have needlessly provoked a fear response and arguable existential threat for the Russian Federation by Threatening to bring Ukraine into our orbit, and so what has Russia done? It's invaded Ukraine to wrench it back, and either send a message that they're not going to allow it, or to fall on annex it, or to topple their government and put in another guy, whatever. Uh, and then to put a button on this, Mearsheimer would also add that we are moving towards we've we've we had our honeymoon period of the unipolar American system that is ending. We are now moving towards a new era of a tripolar world where the great powers that dominate are Russia, America, and China. And in this world, we don't want to be the odd man out. It would be better for us to figure out how to have a frenemy relationship with Russia and keep them from teaming up with China than for them to be lockstep buddies playing footsie under the table while America begins to to wane against these two rising powers. That's where the realists are at. So they would say, we should not, this was all avoidable, but now that we're here, the best case scenario is for uh, probably Ukraine to be neutral and to treat it like Finland and to go, we promise not to bring it into NATO or the European Union. You guys promise not to invade them. And they're going to be kind of a demilitarized. There'll be just a zone between the two. It's neutral at best. Um, Liberals look at the situation and they say, this is a conflict between an authoritarian regime and a democratic regime. Russians are looking at, an ethnically and linguistically similar, if not identical people that live next door and going, hey, how come they get to have democracy while we're stuck with this dude riding horses without a shirt? Like, if they can have a democracy, could we have a democracy? Like, why can't we have a democracy? Could we just get rid of old Putin? So Putin, according to liberals, views Ukraine as a kind of existential threat because it is a beacon on the hill that that shows an alternate universe in which Russia is not an authoritarian regime. And for that reason, he needs to snuff it out. This is kind of Cold War type thinking. Um, they're also looking at this going, uh, realists make a good point, but, um, Ukraine's asking to join our order. It's not that we're sending in tanks and conquering Ukraine to make it a a satellite state of the American empire. It's that they're doing what the Baltic countries did, which is going, Hey, Russia's pushed us around for a thousand years. We would, we would rather be in the group of people that doesn't push us around. Can we join your club? And we have a responsibility to allow them to do so. And then you have a lot of people further going on going, look, um, look, these authoritarians keep wanting to light the world on fire. It would be much better for Ukraine to not be an authoritarian state. It would be better for Ukraine to be a part of the system. So let's let's get them in because maybe eventually if we get in enough countries into this free world, these fires will quit lighting and they'll be extinguished. So uh, I, I don't know that the, the liberals are full on saying we should enfranchise uh, Ukraine into NATO and the EU, but they're thinking about it, right? That was a big thing about a month ago now, three weeks ago now, where the EU had formally allowed – Ukraine to enter the the accession process. Now, I think that was probably lip service, but nonetheless, they're signaling that we are open to you joining our order as opposed to being neutral or part of the Russian Federation. So, and uh, to to make it very t- what is it? TLDR. This is a new thing I learned. TLDR. Uh, realists are saying, give Russia its backyard, and the conflict will go down. Liberals are saying, we need to add these trouble spots into the peaceful world of the free world with its markets and democracy. And these are juxtaposed to one another. You can't have both.
0: Well, and Putin is the other side of this too, that make, I mean, it's relevant in terms of what the concerns we would have is that Putin is not exactly a fan of democracy and liberalism. Uh, And if he were to go into the countries that he wants, he would make them much, they would, they would be living autocratic regimes and he would be much poorer. And they would be much poorer and, and, and living less fulfilling lives. And I mean, on that question, though, because of Putin being the way he is, I don't know a ton about him, but but a little bit, how much should we just be analyzing Putin? Like, I mean, just, I mean, this is not a, this is, this is different than traditional
1: IR. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is. Practically speaking, what should people at the Pentagon be thinking about?
0: Yeah. When it's one person and when it's not, you know, these decisions made by more diverse institutions, it's just Putin decided to invade a country because he's got, he's been reading Russian history apparently for two years and is super obsessed with his legacy and the dying Russian culture and the old Russian empire. Right. Isn't that where we just throw IR out the window and say, no, this is just uh, explaining what happened and why? Is just a method of explaining Vladimir Putin? It's just a question of how you explain him.
1: Maybe. I I would say that that hinges on how how much you trust your psychological analysis of Vladimir Putin. So I would say on a domestic level, I don't tend to trust that a whole lot. And what I mean by that is I am pretty – I am pretty reticent to to look at people and go, I think he's secretly a racist and that's why he did this thing. I don't know. Uh, and I know that I have oftentimes been m- mischaracterized with with motivations that are not mine because somebody outside of me thinks they can read my mind and see the inner machinations of my heart. Um, this is not me trying to be nice to Vladimir Putin, who I think is an authoritarian thug, and I hope he gets chesced. I hope he doesn't die in his sleep. I hope somebody kills him because he's a horrible human being and he's an authoritarian and all the things I hate. So this is not pro Putin. Um, however, I I I don't trust the the Putin analysis that much. They're a little too convenient for me. The the only one that I will I will give is there seems to be a pretty consistent through line going back to at least uh, uh, Madeline Albright that he has a deep. Um, Deep sense of shame over Russia's fall from power following the Soviet Union. He told Madeleine Albright, "We used to be a superpower. Now we're, how did he phrase? It? Now we're Bulgaria with missiles or something. I can't remember. He picked some small country. I don't remember which one. But you know, now now we're Sardinia with missiles, and, and and that seemed to be a real big ego blow to him. That seems to be a thing, just based on all accounts, and that's going back with everyone that I'm aware of that's met him in foreign policy circles going back a long time where, where I, where I get kind of squirrely on it is a lot of the uh, old guard neocons kind of just think he's nuts. I've heard, I've, I've got a lot of neocon friends and, uh, and, and they'll like, you know, he's crazy and he, he knows he's nearing his death. And so he wants to, he wants to make his mark before he dies. And I'm like, uh, I may, I mean, possible in the same sense that anybody could go crazy, but that just to me seems a little convenient. Any Anytime you don't like a person, and you're like, and he's nuts. I'm like, eh, I think that's a good opportunity to, to reinvestigate the, the, the heuristics and mechanics through which you're looking at something when you're doing that. It seems to me I can explain everything he's doing based off of a realist framework. I don't, I don't have to make any asterisks looking at him from realism. Everything he's doing makes total sense to me when I put on my Otto von Bismarck hat. Um, I don't really want to have to go take a psychology course. To understand Vladimir Putin, and I'm not sure if I do that. I truly will, particularly given how opaque he is and how opaque that regime is. So I I don't know how useful that would be. I don't know what we would do different uh, based on that, other than like I guess we all buy more canned goods because we might go to nuclear war because he's a madman.
0: Given this toolkit that we've been discussing, this these frameworks, these ideas, is there are you willing at all to at least at the maybe thirty thousand foot view make any predictions about what or what we should be looking for? Uh, in the, maybe within different frameworks. So if we're in the realist framework, if if Putin is a realist, then we should be looking for him behaving continue to behave in this way and probably continue to go push maybe into the Baltics, uh, definitely opposing Finland and Sweden entering NATO. Uh, that would be the realist position on that although i'm not exactly sure why he views nato as a threat since it's not an offensive organization but uh that's a different question it will stop his ability to do what he wants to do um so if that if that if we treat him as a realist then we should be uh pretty Maybe pessimistic well, for, for about the For one how thing, just to, to clarify to push something,
1: I, I hear this a lot, like, like Putin shouldn't be worried about NATO because it's a defensive organization. I am unaware of any significant difference between defensive guns and offensive guns, or defensive tanks and offensive tanks. If there if there were such a distinction where it's oh well, that tank only shoots that direction, it can't possibly go the other direction, then then sure. But that's not the case. And uh if, if I were Russian, I mean, like the Warsaw Pact was formed in opposition to America. If the Warstop hack was still in existence, I I would go, it seems to be an anti-American club. NATO functionally is an anti-Russian club. Um, So I I get why he views it with with concern. Um, uh, In terms of, I'll say the thing I have my eye on, I share John Mearsheimer's concern about China and Russia um, uh, teaming up. I don't think Russia is nearly as powerful as the neocons think. I think that it's actually kind of a paper tiger. I mean, the fact that, Ukraine is still going strong. It would be an indication that Russia is not nearly as, as much of a military state as we thought it was. Uh, and then beyond that, economically, it's certainly not. Uh, uh, Russia's economy is $1.4 trillion. It is a smaller GDP than Italy. Uh, and I'm not worried about Italy. So uh, I, I don't think Russia is is quite as big of a deal in terms of being a global threat as other people do, save the very big A caveat of nuclear missiles, which could end all of mankind in any given moment. Um, That said, I do think China's on the rise. And I think China is apt to start swinging around. It started putting military bases in Africa. Um, Like historically, China tended to be a regional player. It might very well have global pretensions. It might very well become a superpower at some point. If that is the case, it would be very disadvantageous to the United States to be driving Russia and China into each other's arms. And I I fear that that is happening presently with these sanctions that we are doing. Because China's not participating in the sanctions, which means that we are forcing more trade to happen between these two countries, and I, I don't think that's good. I'd, I'd much, I'd like some Nixon character to go over and be like, you know, these Russians are saying some real racist stuff about you all. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I me, I love anime. I don't, I don't know. I, I probably said something racist there. I didn't try to. What I mean, is, somebody knows what they're doing to go over there and spark up some stuff to keep them on the same page. I think would be a good thing in terms of how it's going to play out in the meantime. Um, I don't think that Putin would go into the Baltics because I think he would if if we were really limp-wristed about it. But I think that we've been pretty clear that uh we will not concede an inch of NATO territory. I think I think the American presidents Trump thought about getting out of NATO. Um Biden is not thinking about doing that and probably whoever replaces Biden is not going to do that either. Um Trump was was an interesting um an interesting a uh, uh, different episode in American foreign policy in that Everyone minus Trump in my lifetime has been a liberal uh, in the IR sense. Uh, uh, Biden, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Obama, all those guys. I don't know as much about Reagan, uh, but probably. uh, But certainly everybody post-Reagan for sure has been a liberal minus Trump, right? Uh, So presuming that that happens with the next couple of presidential administrations, I don't think anybody's going to go, yeah, actually the Baltic states are – they're expendable. I don't see that happening. So I don't see uh, Putin trying to go into them. Uh, what I see happening is I think there's going to have to be um, some face-saving mechanisms for Ukraine where uh, Russia is going to be able to declare victory. It'll just redefine victory as however they want it. They, like, well, Our goal, as we've said from the beginning, was to purge the neo-Nazis from the eastern provinces and having accomplished this, mission accomplished, and they'll go home. Uh, or it might involve NATO and America being the bigger man and going, gosh, man, woo, Russians are real powerful. Oh, it's just, you guys are just a, a Viagra commercial with guns. Oh, we I couldn't do that. There's no way. Man, if we were in there, we would have been licked in a hot. Man, you're powerful. God, you, I bet you could bend horses around Vladimir Putin's erections. What a man he is. Uh, and and do that, and then go, uh all right, well, here's what since you guys have clearly pulled the day off here's here's what we it, you would be doing us a solid if if you just kept Crimea and then moved out of these places that keep killing you that have larger older populations draining you of resources and allow the Ukrainian government to – like whatever I, I could see something happen like that. I think a fig leaf will be needed for him uh and and I don't care i don't i I don't think that his it's it's not like. We're going to suddenly be destabilized by doing this. And I also don't think that – I think all of the reports of Vladimir Putin um, barely holding on to power are wildly exaggerated. I uh, y- y- like reddit which I think is way more fun than Twitter and way more fun than Facebook. Reddit has all these posts I keep seeing about how like Vladimir Putin sent his his mistress and their kids to be in Switzerland, and uh, there's now taste testers and all these things. And the impression you get is that oh, and I read an article the other day that like the oligarchs had picked his successor if they decide to whack him. Good luck with that. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I, I I think a a billionaire sociopath. Uh, with a, a, a couple of decades of entrenched power and a dash of paranoia. I just, I don't see him having a palace coup anytime soon. I certainly don't see the Russian people rising up and getting him, um, on, on my show, on the political orphanage, I do bonus episodes behind the paywall. Uh, my friend Maxim Lot uh, was just over there. He left during the shelling. He left during the conflict. Um, not, he was in Moscow. I should say he left when Moscow was shelling Ukraine, um, He's maintaining relationships over there, and I was talking to him both about legitimately conducted polls, insofar as they exist, and also maxim straw polls. And the only the only portion of the population that thinks that the war is bad is uh, eighteen to twenty four year old females. Everybody else thinks, broadly speaking, we should be over there. Um, and the the position on on uh, well, there are admirable people in Russia that are. Risking their livelihood, if not prison sentences, to oppose the war and oppose Putin's regime, and my hat is off to them. They are they are heroic, and they deserve our, our praise. They are the they are not emblematic of the country as a whole. Uh, what what appears to be the country as a whole is one that is broadly uh, resigned to Putin and not agitating to overthrow Saddam Hussein esque guy. I I just I don't see that happening. I think Putin's going to be there for a while. Um be great if that wasn't the case, but I I don't I don't think it's gonna happen. So um I think that they're gonna reach a kind of stalemate and then and then have a fig leaf and leave. I think Ukraine has bloodied Russia's nose so hard. I do not see a situation now where Russia just installs a puppet leader. Um I think that's what they thought was gonna happen. I don't think that's gonna happen. I, I think that they're gonna get a fig leaf, which is gonna be Crimea maybe they'll I, I very likely the Don Blost and the other eastern provinces that Russia sees that are majority uh, ethnic Russian become a, an independent country uh, I don't think Russia will want to annex them because it won't be worth it to them economically um, so maybe something like that um, and, and that's what I think is going to happen but I'd say keep your eye on Russia and Ukraine I think that's that's something that could be a lot more dangerous in the future
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.